0: Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work.
1: Rubens is a subject that's really hard to reach the ends of, if you will. The extent and the breadth of his output and the richness of his life
0: calls for constant uh, investigation. In this episode, I speak with Getty curator Anne Woollett about the life of the Northern Baroque master painter, Peter Paul Rubens. Peter Paul Rubens was perhaps the most celebrated painter of the 17th century. He was born into an accomplished family. His father was the legal advisor to the second wife of William I of Orange. He received a Renaissance humanist education and studied under the leading Antwerp painters of the day. He traveled to Rome, where he was influenced by the art of Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo and Caravaggio, and then to Spain on a diplomatic mission to the court of Philip III. There he studied the king's extensive holdings of paintings by Titian. Rubens also served on diplomatic missions to Paris and London. I discussed the life and work of Rubens with Getty curator Anne Woollett, with whom I discussed the lives of Rembrandt and Velasquez on earlier episodes of this podcast, as in those cases Our conversation here was prompted by the publication of a book in the Getty series, Lives of the Artists. Thanks, Anne, for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's always good to talk with you. Great to see you, Jim. Now, today we're going to talk about another Getty Publications book in the series, Lives of the Artists. We're discussing three texts on the life of the painter Peter Paul Rubens, who, with Rembrandt Velasquez and the sculptor John Lorenzo Bernini, was the most powerful artist of the 17th century. The three biographical texts we'll be discussing were written in the 17th and 18th centuries by Italian, German, and French authors, just to give our listeners a sense of the scale of Rubens' early reputation. But before we consider these early texts, give us a sense of Rubens' career and importance in the history of art.
1: Well, Rubens was an enormous figure, a towering intellect, but also a great artistic generative force. I think it's hard to overstate his significance for the art of the 17th century. He was an immensely creative individual whose imagery was new often and embodied a combination of ideas from the antique and the Renaissance, the native Netherlandish traditions, and then these new ideas. So he brought in a really new style and a new vigor
0: and a new scale often. So he was influential on the painting style of other artists.
1: Well, yes, he trained many students, and in fact, the dominance of this manner of painting, uh, this muscular, kind of dynamic, vigorous style of painting, became, at least in the first half of the 17th century, a leading influence uh, in
0: the northern part of Europe. What about his early days and his early training itself? In what studio was he initially painting?
1: Well, he trained initially with three artists in Antwerp, and he moved swiftly, really, through the first two he trained with uh, Tobias Veract, who was a landscape painter, someone that's not widely known today, um, a fine artist with a good standing in Antwerp, but not necessarily an international figure. Then he moved to the studio of Adam van Noort, who was also a very important history painter. This was a studio where Rubens probably had a chance to really think about a bigger career in terms of prestige and status, but. Uh, He was a very well-educated artist, an artist with a humanist education. And he moved then to the studio of Otto van Veen, who was known also as Otto Veneus. This was a sort of pictor doctus, uh, a learned painter who had been to Italy, um, had a great knowledge of the classical past, a collector. Rubens spent a couple of years there. And then by 1597, he goes on to become a master painter in his
0: own right. So how long was he a student before he became a painter in his own right, a mature painter?
1: He started painting as a student painter, probably learning the you know, important rudiments of preparing his panels and his paints and things like that around 1592. We don't know exactly the timing of his movements through the, all of the studios, except that he spends three years or so, four years with Otto van Veen ending, as I say, in his uh, registry in the Guild of St. Luke in Antwerp. Uh, And then he he works for the last couple of years of the last decade of the 1590s in Antwerp, but probably in proximity to Ode van Veyn's studio. Maybe the two masters worked together. They had kind of an affinity. And it was an important time in Antwerp, which had had a pretty tough time um, in the religious struggles. Uh, The economy is difficult, but the city's rebuilding and they receive the new archdukes who will be ruling the province of the Southern Netherlands on behalf of the King of Spain. So this is Archduke Albert and Archduchess Isabel.
0: He came from a modestly well-to-do family Mm -hmm. and a very influential family Mm -hmm. in the region. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, his family has long roots in Antwerp, Uh, His father held an important civic position. He was a lawyer who had been trained in Italy. But it really is the religious upheavals that send the family to a safer location in what is now Germany, to Cologne and to Ziegen. Uh, The town of Ziegen is where Rubens himself was born in 1577. And he and his brothers and sisters are there. Their early life is sort of clouded by a major scandal. Their father, Jan Rubens, has an affair with the wife of, a member of the House of Orange, and this is a crime <laughs> that puts him into jail and causes a um, severe hardship for the family. But Jan dies there in Germany, and then Rubens' mother brings the family back to Antwerp.
0: How does an artist like Rubens pass from one of these more senior artists' studios to another until he becomes an artist in his own right? You, you mentioned the Guild of St. Luke. Tell us about that, what that was, and how that helped the career of Rubens.
1: Antwerp had a professional painters' guild that was actually a, quite a large organization that included other artisans within it, but the painters were the largest group in the Guild of St. Luke, and it was necessary to join the guild in order to earn one's living as a painter in the city. This is very typical setup, something that we find throughout Europe, and often a painter would submit a masterpiece, a work of art that showed that they were capable of painting at a certain standard and that their training was finished. Uh, the artistic training of painters in Antwerp is an interesting subject. It follows a general trajectory of probably starting with some fairly practical processes of, of mixing paints, of choosing good wood panels to paint on, but particularly the the practice of developing your hand and eye, learning to draw, drawing from small models seems very likely that Rubens would have had access to small plaster casts of uh, antiquities in Rome, for example, maybe small bronzes. Uh, this is a way that they learned about anatomy, which was not necessarily directly from the live model sitting in front of them. And then it seems in Rubens' case, because perhaps his family standing may have helped him a little bit, he was able to make some choices about his training. Uh, ordinarily, a young student who was coming to train would agree to remain in the studio for a certain amount of time. It was sort of free labor for the master painter. In Rubens's case, maybe he fulfilled his agreements with his masters and was allowed to proceed to study with the individual with whom he wanted to uh, better understand
0: the style and the sort of capabilities. So when does Rubens go to Rome and how old was he?
1: Rubens was 23 when he makes the journey to Rome in 1600. He leaves in May. He needed a passport to get there. He had to be allowed to leave, essentially, the southern Netherlands. But What, this what, what does was, that
0: mean? Why did he have to get permission to leave? The Archducal
1: government uh, kept track of its, its citizens, particularly its leading citizens. So uh, one left with the blessing and the knowledge of the government to travel. And it would have been a trip that was perhaps arranged through his teacher, his former teacher, Otto van Veen. But this enabled him to follow a trajectory that many Antwerp artists who were ambitious uh, had followed in the years before him. It was not unusual, although uh, not every artist could do it. But it was necessary to establish a level of reputation
0: and prestige. And when he got to Rome, did he paint in Rome? And did he have enough time to be able to go to other artist studios or to go to the collections and to be influenced by the collections he saw?
1: So Rubin's first stop on his trip was Venice. And it's in Venice, uh, where he's undoubtedly looking at Titian and Veronese and Tindoretto, that he makes contact with the ducal household in Mantua, the Gonzaga. And he seems to have been invited to the court in Mantua. And that's where he begins his Italian career, in a sense. Uh, He's in Italy for eight years. After 1600, he's based in Mantua, which is a phenomenally interesting court, very high level of culture. And there at that court, he did paint portraits, but He also, because I think he was an erudite and well-mannered Fleming, (laughs) he was given some diplomatic responsibilities. And in fact, he makes a journey to Spain accompanying a major gift from the Gonzaga to King Philip
0: III. Why would he be invited or instructed to do that?
1: He represented that interesting kind of liminal career in a way where he was knowledgeable in languages and in cultural uh, issues, and was a responsible individual. I think Rubens was already understood to be a person of stature and gravitas, even though he was very young. Uh, he didn't occupy an important enough position at the Mansion of Court to to be indispensable there. It's a big responsibility. The few letters that survive from this period, Rubens writes about some of the challenges he faced on the journey. One of the gifts from the Manchuan court were these fabulous horses that are bred there. And there were very special preparations needed to keep the horses looking good. Mm -hmm. And Rubens talked about that. He accompanied a shipment of paintings that were a gift. It was difficult to travel with works of art, and they encountered all sorts of bad weather once they got to Spain. It was a fairly long crossing. But I think you know Rubens probably anticipated a wonderful opportunity to see Spain, to understand better what that court was like. He was confident enough to make contacts as well as he could in a, in a very closed court system in Spain to obtain important commissions. And so he paints the extraordinary and very um, remarkable, almost life-size equestrian portrait of the Duke of Lerma, for example,
0: who was the first minister to the king of Spain. And when he got to Madrid and to the court, Uh, was he able to paint much and was he able to see the collections and be influenced by the collections?
1: Well, so this is Rubens' first visit to Spain and on this visit, unlike the one he makes in the late 1620s, he doesn't seem to see a lot of the royal collections of the Spanish household at that point. He would not have had access in a sense. His own stature was not significant enough to be
0: granted to some of the more interior parts of the... The court life. So after Spain, does Rubens go back to his home in Antwerp or does he go to Italy?
1: Well, he comes back to the Italian peninsula and he spends two important periods in Rome where his brother, uh, Philip, who's an older brother, is working. And his older brother is a, a very learned philosopher and scholar of antiquity. And uh, the two were. Good friends and the painter, Peter Paul, uh, benefited from the contacts that his brother, Philip, had made in Rome amongst the Connercenti and uh, important patrons. And it seems likely that our painter, Rubens, was able to see important Roman collections that were not necessarily easy to access.
0: So when he gets back to Antwerp, he's a, a, a flourishing painter, confident, mature painter.
1: Indeed. He, Rubens returns to Antwerp in late 1608. He's painted very important altarpieces in Rome Four patrons there. And he comes home, actually, not uh, because he wants to, but because uh, the death of his mother, or in fact, her, her illness, draws him uh, on the road from Genoa between um, his time in Rome and his return to Antwerp. He spends time in Genoa and paints important large-scale portraits there. So he makes that journey uh, as quickly as possible. He signs his letters, putting foot into stirrup, (laughs) and sort of indicate his haste. But he's too late when he reaches home, and sadly, his mother's already passed away. But it's an interesting time in Antwerp and the southern Netherlands in general. Uh, There is about to be signed an important peace treaty between the Spanish king and the rebellious northern provinces of the Netherlands, the Protestant provinces. And it seems to suggest, and Rubens writes about this, that there will be peace, and with peace, they hope, will come economic prosperity. And he decides, rather than to return to Italy, which he wanted to, he
0: would stay. Hmm. I want to get to the author of the first biography, the first life of the artist of Rubens. And this author is named Giovanni Baglioni, and he published his first biography of the artist in 1642. Tell us who he was, Baglioni.
1: Baglioni is a fascinating figure, a painter who is born in Rome. He's essentially Rubens' age. He's 11 years older, and he is important to us as a biographer, Rubens, because he's really writing at the same time that Rubens is living and working. And it seems that the biography of Rubens' life reflects largely his work in the 1620s. Bayoni is important for our understanding of Roman art in the very first years of the 17th century. Uh, This is a time where he could have met Rubens, in fact. We don't have any evidence that they had some important exchange. And in fact, Bioni's biography doesn't allude to any personal contact at all. But Rubens was in the city, and he, Rubens likely would have been aware of the controversies that were swirling around Bioni and Caravaggio. Well, what was that? Well, the controversy consumed the artistic community of Rome around 1603. Two patrons, members of the Giustiniani family, commissioned paintings from two painters who were different in personal temperament and artistic style. A painting from Caravaggio and a painting from Giovanni Baglione. Uh, the difference between these painters and the comments they made about each other were held, obviously, in sort of uh, the normal places where artists convene, and, you know, uh, and taverns and in the street. But ultimately, the sense of defamation brought this controversy into the courts and in 1603 there was a suit of libel in the city and uh, at the trial caravaggio made very disparaging comments about Baglioni as a painter um, and for this he was jailed for a couple of weeks in fact balioni was a wonderful painter and he had a number of colleagues who spoke for him at the trial and said that he
0: was of the first rank yeah. what got balioni to um, write the life of rubens and did he write the lives of other artists
1: Agliani wrote a very important series of biographies, about 200 biographies of artists. He was a very thoughtful writer, in fact. He was interested in larger issues. He wasn't really a critic per se, so he wasn't necessarily writing stories about other artists that compared them or contrasted their their ways of painting. But he was as clear as possible about their important works, and he was very interested in the status that came from their successes. So... He charted, as in the case with Rubens, there are other activities as diplomats or their ability to become wealthy by their art.
0: How do we know how he knew about the lives of the artists?
1: Bayane knew about other artists in a variety of ways, and in certain cases he relied on anecdotal material, probably passed down from students or members of families, and in some cases, the biographies that Balioni writes for us include uncritical use of these anecdotal stories that to say more a little bit about what some of the common ways of framing artistic practice were artistic personalities. But in the case of Rubens, he was able to refer directly to works that Rubens created in the city that were important altarpieces and narrate some of the aspects of their creation, which is an important indicator that Rubens' status was rather clear, even though he was a young artist from outside the city. Mm
0: -hmm. He cites an early commission that Rubens received to make um, paintings for the Roman Church of the Holy Cross of Jerusalem, which had been restored by the Archduke Albert of Austria, I assume to be an extraordinarily important patron of the arts. How important was that commission for Rubens' career, and who was the Archduke?
1: Yes, the paintings for Santa Croce in Jerusalem was... A very important point for Rubens in his trajectory. He's based in Rome and he's given the commission to paint three paintings for the titular church of the Archduke. So Archduke Albert, a member of the Habsburg family, had been a cardinal before his marriage. This was the church with which he was associated in Rome. And it's one of the most important early churches in Rome. It was founded to house the relics of the true cross and the passion of Christ, notably those associated with the Saint Empress uh, Helena, who was the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Rubens created these three uh, subjects, Saint Helena with the true cross, mocking of Christ. Uh, These two works survive in Grasse, uh, France, and then the elevation of the cross, which has been lost Rubens hasn't been in Rome very long, though, and he's painting in a style that's probably still more associated with the late 1590s Antwerp than it is with Rome. So we see strong contrasts of light and shadow. Uh, They are intended to be very dramatic images, but they're a little bit stiff. We don't see the physical uh, and kind of dynamic uh, movement that Rubens would impart once he's a little bit more mature.
0: Well, we we know that Baglione saw a number of the paintings that Rubens painted at the time because he describes them uh, in the book. And he mentions that Rubens returned to his home city of Antwerp where he entered the court of the Archduchess of Austria. Was this an important court? And was, I assume the Archduchess of Austria was the wife of the Archduke of Austria.
1: Yes, it, this is a wonderful elevation for Rubens in a sense. he He comes back to Antwerp and is undecided as to what his next step should be. But almost immediately, Archduke Albert and his wife, the Archduchess Isabel, are working to convince him to stay and to become their court painter. The Archdukes are a fascinating couple. Uh, They are ruling jointly uh, in this region of the Southern Netherlands. This is a region that roughly corresponds to Belgium today. It is separated at that point from the northern provinces of the Netherlands, which Roughly corresponds to what we call Holland. And they are ruling on behalf of the Spanish king. They are both cultured individuals. The Archduchess Isabel in particular is the daughter of King Philip II of Spain, and she's had a remarkable and superb education, and she's a great kind of sir or knowledgeable about works of art in particular, as is the Archduke Albert, who was brought up at the same court in Madrid. So they know, a good painter, (laughs) and they know that Rubens embodies the qualities that they will need to capture their likenesses, their portraits, and to articulate the religious and political messages they have in mind for the Southern Netherlands. I should say it's important to remember that the Archdukes had enough regard for Rubens and I think he was able to make a, a strong case that he didn't have to move to Brussels, to the court. He was allowed to stay in Antwerp. Although he was one of several painters associated with their court, he was the only one to hold the title that we would roughly equate to court painter. He had very unusual terms. He did not have to register with the Guild of St. Luke. And that meant that he could have as many assistants slash students as he needed wanted.
0: And tell us about the studio and how big was it and how was it structured?
1: Well, fairly quickly, Rubens became the head of a large studio it's not easy to know exactly how many um, warm bodies were (laughs) in it. And he would have had an organization that was very much uh, based on a Renaissance model where very young men would come and begin at the, the earliest stages of learning how to prepare paintings and watching others work and learning to draw under supervision. We don't even know their names because they didn't have to register with the guild. And, And these artists assisted in various ways. They helped create the large-scale compositions. Uh, Rubens was also inventing very interesting new subjects that were large-scale, and so uh, it was necessary to have many different people working. Rubens oversaw the work of the students, and more or less, uh, he would, in some cases, come at a later stage and essentially finish uh, certain works of art with his own intervention and to to bring it to life, so to speak. Uh, But this is not to say whatsoever that he didn't paint himself. He was someone who painted constantly. And one of his major tasks was to design the compositions for ceiling paintings, for tapestries, uh, for other cycles. And he did this directly on rather standard-sized panels in which he literally drew in oil with great rapidity.
0: Now, in the early 20s, Baleone writes of Rubens going to Paris, where he was called to France by the Queen Mother, the Maria de Medici, for whom he painted this extraordinary gallery of paintings celebrating her life and marriage to the King of France, Henry IV. Describe that gallery for us and what it meant for his career, that is, Rubens' career.
1: In the 1620s, Rubens has entered a phase of his career in which painting and diplomacy and politics are all closely intertwined. And he's in Paris on a sort of diplomatic mission on behalf of the Archduchess Isabel, and he's making contacts there. And he's invited as one of the few artists working then, I think, really, who could generate a large scale cycle of historical slash biographical subjects for the widowed Queen of France. And Maria de' Medici wanted a cycle that would represent her life and also the life of her late husband, King Henry IV of France. Uh Ruben started with a cycle for the Queen. Twenty-four compositions uh, for the Luxembourg Palace, which is where she lived, and then there would be twenty-four corresponding compositions, so to speak, for uh, Henry IV. This was a really interesting challenge because there were not too many precedents for major painting cycles celebrating the life of female rulers hmm. anywhere at that time, much less uh, in France, in particular. Uh, Maria de Medici, of course, is a, an Italian princess, and. Uh, Rubens was present at her proxy marriage in Florence, actually, uh, in the early 1600s. So it's a full circle, in a sense, for him. But this is where he demonstrates his diplomatic frame of mind and also his great command of the tools of a history painter's trade. So allegory, the use of uh, classical references, the ability to use virtues to represent actions and activities of an individual that, in her case, she was not a military hero. She was a consort, an important figurehead, but you know, Rubens had to find other ways to express her role in the French society, and, uh, and on a large scale. And he did this by combining mythological elements and creating a series of events stemming from the betrothal and down through the death of her husband. Rubens created interest and drama in these scenes with a number of different methods that create a sense of continuity, and which link the episodes to one another. Often the scenes are set in landscapes, there are elements of weather, there are celestial events, brilliant light effects. Uh, They're absolutely fascinating and very beautiful. And one doesn't really realize that there isn't necessarily a specific achievement being noted, or it's anything other than an articulation of an occasion.
0: Now, Balione mentions uh, Rubens' diplomatic skills, and we've talked about Rubens as a young, as it were, diplomat going off to Madrid to serve as an ambassador. And then we talk about him being sent to the English court to negotiate peace between the crowns of England and Spain. What were his his duties as an ambassador, as a mature now ambassador? Was it a professional set of responsibilities, or was it just uh, his charm and wit?
1: Well, after having served the Archduke Albert and Archduchess Isabella very loyally through the 16-teens. Archduke Albert dies in 1621, and the archduchess is asked to remain to govern the Netherlands single-handedly. And she really relied on Rubens. It's a very interesting phenomena. She entrusted Rubens to convey her desires for peace between Spain and the Netherlands and with England, you know, in his capacity as a diplomat, Rubens was never not a painter. So in a sense, his entree to the courts rested on his stature and his fame as a painter. And for some courtiers, in fact, many courtiers, that was a problem because that was a manual profession and it had no place amongst the exalted elite. But Rubens's command of languages, his decorum, and his, frankly, I think, very imposing stature and personality enabled him to represent the Archduchess Isabel and to speak with individuals about the importance of, of finding peace and of seeking peace and ascertaining what steps could be taken. He seems to have been a facilitator, and his correspondence suggests he traveled a lot in this capacity. There are even allusions to somewhat secret meetings in taverns in Ghent, you know, with English ambassadors and or agents and things. Frankly, some of the people with whom he met and and corresponded at home were not very flattering because they couldn't understand why they would be speaking with a painter, however well represented by his sovereign. But it enabled Rubens really to to travel and to go places that were not maybe so easy for others. It's a sad result in a sense, though, a lot of this effort, a great deal of stress. He was very invested personally in achieving the results that they were seeking – You know, he didn't necessarily succeed in his efforts, but his efforts were recognized by King Charles I of England, who knighted him, and by King uh, Philip IV of Spain, who also showered him with honors. So at the time, his contribution to the process of securing
0: peace was very clear. And while he was there, he got a number of important commissions. Was it then that he painted the ceiling of the Banqueting Hall? Right. So uh, that was a
1: wonderful commission for this important meeting space in London, in the center of this palace. Rubens, again, brought this remarkable understanding of a political allegorical language together to create a kind of a visual history and a visual statement of English politics for this coffered ceiling. So it was many separate compositions. Mm-hmm. They were executed in Antwerp by Rubens and his
0: workshop and then sent back to London for installation. So it was after he concluded his diplomatic responsibilities and returned to Antwerp that he painted the pictures. They were then taken back to England and installed in the Banqueting room? Yes. Yeah. Now, following his success in London and Spain, he returned to Antwerp, as we just said, and he, he painted a portrait of the king and queen and all of the princes, and he was named secretary and counselor of the state. Were these just honorifics and decorative honors, or did he have actual political and diplomatic responsibilities serving the archduchess?
1: He served the Archduchess Isabel closely until her death, and he found it a quite demanding role, frankly. I don't think that necessarily the honors uh, associated with the court that he received later in life involved specific day-to-day responsibilities, but it meant that he could be called upon at any time to fulfill a desire that the Archduchess might have for him. She was a very energetic and... keen individual. She was someone who went to the battlefield, who was invested in the success and the progress of uh, Catholic forces.
0: So uh, this was a dynamic court under this single female ruler. All of these many trips that Rubens took, did he see pictures now? Because when we talked about the first trip to uh, Madrid, he wasn't of a stature sufficient to allow him access to the great picture galleries and therefore to be inspired by the artists that he might have seen for the first time, works by the artists he might have seen for the first time. But now he is a great man. So is he in the company of great artists?
1: When he makes his second trip to Spain in the late 1620s, He indeed, he meets uh, Velázquez. And uh, they seem to have a special rapport. And uh, Rubens did paint while he was there. Uh, there's some wonderful anecdotes about Velazquez and Rubens riding in the mountains behind El Escorial, the fabulous palace outside of Madrid. So uh, I guess it was a very different time, and it's a time when Rubens's exposure to additional works by Titian and other Venetian Renaissance painters very, very important time. And that exposure imprints his own style in the last decade of his life. So between about 1630 and his death in 1640, we see a much looser brushstroke, a very descriptive kind of brushwork, flickering, animated, rich color, very much something that uh, suggests the impact of Titian
0: was important. Mm. Now, when he's back in Antwerp, he suffers the loss of his wife. His wife dies he remarries, and he paints these extraordinary paintings of his younger wife. Tell us about that sequence of events.
1: Rubens is clear in his letters at the beginning of the 1630s when he decides to remarry that it's a real choice that he's marrying someone who is not going to disdain him for his true profession, and he remains devoted to painting. For all of the diplomatic work that he did, it was not necessarily his passion whatsoever. In fact, it was a think something that was something of a trial for him he was very happy in a sense when he was no longer working uh, in a diplomatic capacity but he continued to paint he loved to paint and he married the daughter uh, of an Antwerp prominent Antwerp merchant tapestry merchant uh, with whom he already had connections much is made of the huge age difference he's in his 50s and she's in her teens but um, you know really seen as a Moment of rejuvenation for him, and he writes a very unabashed uh, letter to his close friend, Nicolas Claude, Fabry de Piresque, about this. And you feel that sense of energy and spring like attitude in, in the choice of subjects. He starts to paint a lot of mythological subjects. And we see the three graces, we see allegories of bounty and fruitfulness, and we have satyrs chasing nymphs. <laughs> and uh, it's a very interesting period of time. Uh, but he's also beginning to feel the results of this quite rigorous decade that he's completed in the 20s. And he buys a retreat, if you will, in the countryside called Hütstein. Uh, he likes to paint landscapes. And he paints these extraordinarily beautiful landscapes of the Flemish countryside. And he begins to pull back
0: from public life. Yeah. Now let's talk about the next life of Rubens. Uh, it was written by the slightly younger German artist Joachim van Sandrat. Who was he and how is his account of Rubens' life different from that of Balione's?
1: Von Sandrart is an interesting account. It's very lively, written by a younger artist. Uh, not an artist of particular distinction, but unlike Balione, he didn't really insert his own self-assessment into the biography of Rubens. Uh, Von Sandrart is very careful to tell us that his painting was seen by Rubens and that the master... Politely, kind of uh, acknowledged his efforts and seemed very courtly. Um, and and van Sandret's account is a pleasure to read in some ways because it's by someone who spent time in Rubens's company. Rubens visits Utrecht in what's the northern province of the Netherlands, sixteen twenty seven. He meets Gerard van Honthorst, a leading painter there. And it's in this context that uh, Sandra becomes associated with Rubens and travels with him a little bit. And uh, it gives us an idea of a little bit how Rubens did interact with other artists. He may not have spent a lot of time in Antwerp associating, apart from those artists with whom he worked, of which there were many, and his friends such as Jan Bregel the Elder. He had a very important artistic community there. But in terms of traveling to speak with other artists and things, he was not doing that so frequently, potentially. So when he makes this trip to the North, he takes time to to meet the leading artists, and Van Sandrart is there to tell us about it.
0: Does Van Sandart read Balioni's Life of the Artist? Was he aware of that as, a, as an example or a sample of the kind of writing that he must now write? It was
1: probably just a little bit too early for Van Sandart to have read Balioni. They're writing about Rubin's life at the same moment in the 20s, so Van Sandra would have been aware of um, probably Carl von Mander's biography of northern artists and uh, Vasari, uh, writing about Italian artists in the 16th century. And uh, he instead uses something closer to a travel account in the case of Rubens.
0: Are the kind of stories that they each tell of Rubens that are fanciful?
1: They're wonderful evocations of character. And they are similar enough to make us think that there's something to the notion of this extremely calm, dignified, genial, handsome Mm -hmm.
0: individual. Now, Rubens dies in 1640. What did he leave behind in the way of paintings, oil sketches, and drawings? Was his studio full of things that had not yet been finished or had just been finished and not have been distributed? Were there works by other artists in his collection? What did he leave us?
1: Well, Rubens lived in a monumental house, a kind of almost palazzo in the center of Antwerp, which had a... Studio uh, where he worked and where his assistants worked with him, and then there was a an area for his collection. So he had a, a designated area for antique sculpture, uh, which had a domed ceiling, and um, he did have an important collection of paintings. And these included a number of works by sixteenth-century Dutch and Flemish artists, by Italian artists, and by his contemporaries even. And he had been working hard until his death on major commissions, particularly for King Philip IV and uh, for the hunting lodge of the Torre de la Parada, which is near Madrid, and a number of large mythological subjects. So there were some paintings in the studio that were probably not finished. And uh, there were important inventories drawn up, and there were sales uh, following his death. And he had... Made provision in his will for his children, his son Albert, named for the Archduke Albert, who was the godfather, a classical scholar in his own right, carried on some of his father's work. And so some things were kept by the family, and there were things that were kept by his second wife, Helen Formont, such as the famous painting where she's seen full length wrapped in a... Mm. And fur. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, so there was great eagerness, and a fairly immediately parts of Rubens's studio and estate were distributed. And foreign dignitaries, and quite notably Philip IV through his agents, wanted to obtain as many paintings by Rubens as possible from that studio.
0: So let's look at the third life of Rubens, this one by Roger de Peel, who lived from 1635 to 1709, therefore was born shortly before the death of Rubens in 1640. What distinguished his life of Rubens from the two earlier lives?
1: Well, de Peel was a great defender of Rubens' style. There had been a very heated debate in the French Academy in which de Peel was a major player. In particular, de Peel defended Rubens's painting of figures, the notion introduced by critics that parts of Rubens's bodies were incorrect in proportion or incorrect in articulation. Were things that uh, Depeel pushed back on as a way of defending the importance of color over the primary goal of design. It's a complex subject in a sense, but really, the debate in the French Academy was divided between those who followed the arguments of Nicolas Poussin, whose importance was based on correct design, an idea that is a very intellectual. Has a very intellectual premise based also in the Italian schools of Bologna, where drawing and precision and rendering the human form was the basis for art. And on the other side, DePeel and other French painters looked to the Italian Renaissance, to Titian, for example, and to Rubens as great artists who were able to create convincing compositions through color and through the optical qualities of painting uh, form. Roger de Peel had a real advantage over the earlier biographers of Rubens. He had a biography of Peter Paul Rubens written by his nephew, Philip Rubens. And this is very crucial because uh, it really provides a very specific information about Rubens's earliest career, about the time that he is training in the 1590s and his work with Otto van Veen. So, these very specific details, which are not mm. covered by other biographers, are aspects that uh, Depeel brings forth in his uh, description of Rubens's life.
0: Uh, finally, Depeel used a bunch of grapes as a metaphor for the quality of Rubens' painting that he most admired. what What did he mean by that? It's a very
1: telling metaphor, and one that's very astute. it reflects Depeel's quite sophisticated uh, pictorial, analytical, You know, he was a great connoisseur and his opinion was sought um, and his ability to critically kind of analyze compositions was um, admired in his own time. And when he uses this metaphor, he's referring to the way that there are different separate components of light and dark and perhaps in the composition, different groupings that together create a coherent whole. But one can also concentrate on the individual uh, elements And so rather than sort of think about this abstractly, if one looks at a Rubens composition, you know, Rubens was an artist who worked in a kind of more or less organic fashion. Uh, He had a sense of putting together different components. And, you know, he did, as some other artists did as well, he could reuse ideas from different places. But he's able to put them together so that these elements together form a coherent and often very complex composition of figures. And this is a great skill um, that was admired by other artists who might work more academically and in a more fixed fashion to create a composition, whereas in Rubens's case, there's a sense of energy and of a kinetic force that brings together
0: the different elements that he's, he's painting. What is the legacy of Rubens as a painter in the centuries since he died?
1: Well, there was a change in taste in the late 17th century. So initially there was a, a real turn to a sort of more classicism in certain areas of Europe. But ultimately, there's a tremendous appreciation for the magnitude of his work, which is comprised not simply of the physical execution and the deftness and the assurance and the variety of paintings that he made, but the intellectual component, uh, which is unrivaled, really, in his time in the north part of Europe, this is an artist who had a deep understanding of not only biblical uh, subjects, but of subjects from the antique, and was able to compose and invent uh, new subjects from these sources. And Rubens' legacy was, in fact, a physical legacy, the sheer output that he mm. was able to attain with a workshop that was highly organized that reflected his inventions in terms of the composition and the subject matter, and then transmit them through uh, this highly descriptive style that was able to be replicated Rubens left his mark on a tremendous number of different media. He was a designer of tapestries. He created small panel paintings for connoisseurs. He created large altarpieces that were seen in churches. And he created a visual language that seemed utterly
0: Flemish. Now we could talk about the literary legacy of Balione and Sandra and De Peel in these three uh, early lives, because there's a, a virtual mile of books published on the life and the career of Rubens. There's a whole corpus rubinianum that documents the lives of the artist as we know it and the character of the paintings that he painted and so on. It's his reputation still today as as high as it was in my early years in graduate school, you know, 40 years ago.
1: There's tremendous interest in Rubens these days. It's so exciting to see it. There are regularly exhibitions of his work, and there have been a number in, in the last couple of years which look at all facets of his output. Rubens is a subject that's really hard to reach the ends of, if you will, the extent and the breadth of his output and the richness of his life calls for constant uh, investigation. And we found that he's a subject that appeals to many viewers because of the ability to narrate, to tell stories in an engaging and exciting fashion. So Rubens continues to be a very, very important artist, for all of us.
0: Well, the Getty's at work preparing an exhibition looking at Rubens and his relationship to the past, that is, to the ancient past. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, this is an exhibition called Rubens' Picturing Antiquity that will be shown at the Getty Villa. And this will juxtapose ancient works with uh, the works of art that Rubens produced in response to ancient objects. So it really looks at how works of the classical past inspired him. And, reveals the ways that he innovated as a result of the knowledge and as a result of the exposure to the ideas from from the ancients, as he called them.
0: Yeah, well, we look forward to that exhibition very much. It's been fun, as always, to talk with you, Anne, uh, on the podcast and to talk particularly about the lives of the artist. It reinforces the significance of these uh, early lives that we're reading them still today. Indeed. Thank you, Jim. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003 It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts, or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.